I feel funny holding a mic, but <clears throat> my voice is giving out, and I texted JB this morning and said, is there any way we could do something with a microphone? And he waved a wand and made it happen, so thank you, JB. Uh, okay, so um, <clears throat> we're looking now to the future that's promised to us. Um, so we're concluding this grand story we've been tracing from Genesis. Now we're ending in Revelation, which feels right. Um, and thinking about eschatology, that's the fancy word theologians like to use. The eschaton is essentially um, the end. And so when we think about the end and what it will be like, that's where the ology comes in, right? Um, here's a quote that I like <clears throat> that sums up what we're doing when we talk about eschatology. This is from a theologian named Thomas Rausch. Um, he said, what is our hope as Christians? To what do we look forward? Does God forget the countless victims of history? What about our beloved dead? What future does God have in store for us? Will it involve our beautiful earth? To raise these questions is to ask about eschatology. Okay, so what does our future hope entail? What was Israel's hope that we've inherited? This inheritance, that's, I think inheritance is a really important term that it took me a long time to realize um, that that's something that is theologically loaded for us as well. I always thought for Israel that meant something like inheriting the land. Um, but thinkers like John Mark and others have helped me see you know, that it's much bigger than that. I mean, it is attached to land, but this is about the renewal of all things. This is about inheriting the earth, so to speak. So um, <clears throat> I like to pay attention to the Old Testament as well as Revelation. So I'm going to read... Um, the first two passages I've listed on the board, Isaiah um, 2, 4, and then Zechariah 14, um, verses 7 through 21. I'm going to skip a little in the middle there. But just to hear this imagery, um, the, the Old Testament, the prophets are really rich with this sort of thing. And I think it's just beautiful to kind of call our imaginations to what is it that we're anticipating? What does the day of the Lord look like? What does it look like when God's kingdom finally fully comes on earth as it is in heaven? Okay, so from Isaiah, God shall judge between the nations and shall decide for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's just, I think a lot of people, that's one of our favorites, right? It's just so beautiful to think about turning your weapons of war into tools for agriculture. Um, for just peace and flourishing. Zechariah 14, verse 7. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. And then skipping down to verse 20. <clears throat> I love this so much. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them 
and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Everything, even the bells of the horses and the pots and pans, will be holy to the Lord. There will be no sacred and profane. There will be no um, division between where we can find God and where God is not. Uh, I, I just love that, that imagery, the everyday objects um, being holy to the Lord. Okay, so now um, I've asked George, I'm going to save my voice just a bit. I asked him to read um, the portions he would select from Revelation 5. Usually with my students, we listen to the whole thing, but I want to be mindful of our time today. So, Yeah, as I was uh, preparing for today, I, it, it struck me with the way, you know, those prophecies that Lauren just read and the way Revelation ends, that this, um, the eschatology of the final being, you know, our souls going to live in heaven doesn't really fit the story. If you look at the entire story of Scripture that we were created to be um, on the earth and we're, we're humans and God, God has always, uh, the plan has always been for us to, to live on the earth and be in a renewed earth. It's going to be a different kind of earth and there's a lot of things we don't know about it, but uh, the, the ending that ends with us ruling on the earth is really a better ending than us going up as souls into the sky. And it's, I know, I, I'm still, it's such a, you know, it's been like 15 years now or so since I've really come to think about it that way, but, uh, you know, my dad still is not a fan of it. Um, you know, he says, you can do what you want, I'm going to go to heaven. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> I guess that works. But it's just amazing to me that it's, you know, it, it uh, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm sure, is this right? Because it's really not the way that we were taught or, or thought about it for a long time. So, but I, I think it's right. I think it's probably right. Who knows? But um, I think it is. Um, and it's a good ending. So I, I thought of, you know, a lot of songs that we sing are based on these parts of Revelation. At least the songs we used to sing are based on these parts of Revelation. And then... Um, the um, what was that? oh yeah, all the calls back to Genesis one to three, it so it makes it a great you know the the Bible is bookended by the Genesis and then by the end of Revelation are good bookends. So we're going to start at uh, chapter five, but Revelation four is about God on the throne, and then Revelation five is about how uh, they need somebody to open the scroll that shows the plan that the, the guy on the throne has come up with, or God on the throne has come up with. So, uh, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne uh, a scroll writing with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, uh, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, under the earth, People, I'm not sure exactly who that is, but um, trolls. No, it's uh, <laughs> under the earth. Probably the dead or something like that. Uh, so they're looking. It's, it just means there's no no one anywhere that can do that. Um, so he wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me. Uh, do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
So we have a lion, a picture of a lion. So Revelation is very, this is going to be very symbolic. Uh, all these things are symbols. So it's interesting to think about what, what's being symbolized here. So we have the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then the image is going to change in the next verse, and the lion goes away, and we have a lamb. So, um, so let's keep reading. So I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. So the horns represent power, and seven is complete power. Uh, When he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb. So we have uh, 24... We're going to see a lot of um, imagery of 12 and 12. So we got Old Testament and New Testament, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, uh, all symbolized here. And they sing a new song. We used to sing about a song of Moses and the Lamb, and this is that. So when you have new moments of redemption, you need new songs. So this is the new songs. Uh, So you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God. Members of every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will uh, live forever as souls in heaven when they die. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. It says they will reign on the earth. So uh, it's interesting how we missed that uh, point. You read that through God. <laughs> I don't. I, I will. I'm going to see what he says about that and report to some of you uh, what he says. I'm sure he says it's a revelation. You know, it's just figurative, and this Jehovah's Witness teach that, so it's got to be wrong. You know, the reigning on earth is not not right because Jehovah's Witness believe that. That's the way I was raised. I mean, we did. We taught a lot against that theology because we thought it was too material. Uh, I don't know. It's just an interesting how how it's changed. Um. But this idea that there's people from every tribe and language, too, um, is interesting. Okay, let's go to chapter 21. So, um, a new heaven and a new earth. What's the new earth for if we're all going to live in, in heaven? Um so I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and in my Bible that's in quotation marks. It's you know it's in the the book of Isaiah as well, and the, some of the prophets. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So the sea represents chaos in Jewish mindset. So there's no more chaos. Saw the holy city, the new heavenly, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So the New Jerusalem is both a city, but it represents a people, and it represents the church. Um, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Lord's God, Lord, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe tears from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making 
everything new. So he's not making all new things, he's making all things new. So uh, there's a restoration of what, what has been created. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, I'm finding it hard to read my little print Bible. Uh, so we'll go to verse 8. What verse am I on now? 5? can't read that. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God. They will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and this is the second death. That's Revelation 21.8. Now I remember the song that I was taught as a kid. Anyway, Revelation 21.8, if you lie, you will fry. That's, that's how we say it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, the, the picture, though, other than that, is very good. Very, very beautiful. Um, but we need to talk. You know, it's interesting, uh, Lauren and I were talking about how in John Mark's book, he doesn't mention the dark side of, of the end. He only mentions the, the hope. And I think, uh, I don't know what to read into that for John Mark. Is, uh, you know, there, there's maybe a hope that everybody will participate in, in the end. But there, there is an option for people not to be part of it. Um, and I, I think they self-select that option. But Okay, let's go to 22. Uh, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, um, bearing twelve crops of fruit. So we have the tree of life showing up again, like we had in Genesis. Uh, Yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Uh, No longer will there be any curse, so we have a reversal of the curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Uh, they will see his face. So what does it mean to see the face of God? Because you, you can't see the face of God. But now you can see the face of God because we're in our redeemed state. It doesn't harm us to see the face of God. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need a light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So this idea of reigning on the earth. Okay. Good picture. Thanks. Well, George did a lot of the hard work of unpacking some of that for me, so thank you. Um, A few things I'd like to bring out, and then um, I do want to just say a little bit about the different ways people have over time sort of wrestled with the idea of hell and some sort of eternal consequence. So I'll, I'll present those options and then we'll have hopefully a little time to talk and see what else George has to add. Um, a, a few things that I try to emphasize when I'm teaching this material is <clears throat> that, of course, um, everyone here knows um, that Revelation 
is uh, full of so much metaphor um, that it's hard for us. A lot of that is lost on us, so it's really important to study it, to study the history, to study what in the world people might have been thinking of. Yeah, we have uh, people like Alan here who've done this work. He's taught a great class on Revelation. Maybe we can convince you to do it again. Um, but, uh, you know, so much of it we still don't really know for sure um, how they would have heard it or received it. Um, but there's enough here that we can kind of come up with some pretty clear pictures, like George was giving us, of how they would have heard it or understood it. Like, I love that about the 12, uh, you know, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 24. That makes so much sense once you see that. But otherwise, that might have been lost on us, right? I mean, we might not automatically connect that. Um, <clears throat> but the, the clear picture here is God's complete victory over the worldly powers of sin and evil and death the things that have tried to thwart God's good purposes for the world from the beginning, um, God is assuring us that there will be a time when those things are expelled from the good creation and we no longer, uh, it seems like we'll have something to do. Um, this idea of the, the songs being new every morning, John Mark really brings out the idea that it seems like there's going to be some sort of, uh, you know, he even, I, I thought this was interesting, he uses the language of there may even be new histories which I thought was interesting. Um, but the idea is that there will be, we'll be doing stuff. There'll be activity. There'll be some sort of adventure. Um, it's the way he, he uses that language as well. But it won't be to, to partner with God in pushing the chaos out of the creation. That work will be complete. There'll be something else. And um, I also find it interesting because for us, it's so hard to think about what there is to do if we don't have to do something about the chaos. Right? It sounds like, well, that, that means you just do nothing. You just be sitting around. Um, but then I think, you know, I was talking with Jason last night. I was like, you know, it's not necessarily true, though, because sometimes when I think about my favorite memories, it's when I'm together with people that I love, and we're not working on some project to order the chaos. We're just having a good time together, you know? And so I think, well, that we have these images, we have these snapshots in our life of what it might be like to have to find real joy in diversity, in encountering each other, in deepening those kind of relational bonds. And so I think <clears throat> we have reason to hope for that. I think the language that um, there's some sort of newness here, uh, the songs are new every morning, the fact that the nations are there, um, it seems like diversity is not eliminated. Um, we could hope that and kind of maybe anticipate that we'll still get to... Um, and, you know, encounter one another in our embodied differences. And somehow um, we can look at Christ's body as a kind of type of what our bodies will be like. He was still recognizable. So I think maybe we will be too. Uh, we won't just be these disembodied spirits floating around like your dad wants. Um, although he probably doesn't want that. You never know. Yeah. Um, so what else here? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think... I do, I agree with George that I think it's so important to emphasize that what we're looking forward to is this renewed creation where heaven is coming down to meet earth. Um, this means God is going to reign and all things will be set right. All things will be rightly ordered. There will be no division, um, like I said earlier, between us and God. Everything will be holy to the Lord. And I love that emphasis on um, God making all things new, not all new things. I think that's really helpful. God isn't scrapping the old and starting over. Um, he's renewing the creation. That's the key point there. 
But there will be an old order that is gone. And what is that? Well, it's the order of chaos. It's the order where there is death and decay and mourning and crying. And um, these things will be no more. <clears throat> so that what a, what a wonderful thing that is to look forward to. Um, and then there's this idea, I think, that we can cling to that uh, we will be dwelling fully with God. And the language I've heard is that we will be fully animated by the Holy Spirit. The same way we have a foretaste of the Spirit now, um, the inheritance we look forward to is this full indwelling that we don't really experience yet, which is a pretty marvelous idea. Okay, um, and then I do want to hop over and um, think about how people have understood Revelation 21.8. Okay, so what I want to say is that there are um, usually I would sketch these on the board and give a kind of a lot of details, but I'm just going to give a kind of cursory glance at these. There are three kind of big categorical ways that people have translated the, this and wrestled with scripture to try to understand what, what's implied. So those, the categories are the traditional view, um, the conditional view, and the universalist view. So, um, and each of these has kind of like a part A and B. Um, so, According to the traditional view, part A is, is the view that takes the idea of some sort of eternal torment very literally. Um, people would say this is a matter of divine justice. Um, people who are evil in this life deserve this eternal punishment and suffering. Um, I think this is the hardest view to support, actually, in a lot of ways, because um, when what we see in Scripture is God punishing always for the sake of bringing people back. Um, it's hard to imagine a loving God, I think, who would punish someone infinitely for something they did for a finite amount of time. Um, and when I say punish, I mean torture. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a, a loving God torturing someone infinitely. I mean, you think about that. Like, you know, someone's a, a jerk for 78 years, and then they get tortured for millions upon millions upon millions, and they're just getting started, right? That just... It kind of goes against our understanding of justice, I think. So that's hard for me to get behind. Um, but the other traditional view, part B, um, is a little easier for me to understand. It's, it's, this is um, kind of classical thinkers like Aquinas and um, Augustine. They really believe that what's happening here is um, the language is metaphorical for a kind of punishment that people have brought on themselves by rejecting God, and God is giving them what they asked for, which is a world without God. And a world without God is a kind of eternal torture and punishment. Um, so that one's, that one's easier for me to understand um, because it's about God's absence. So I could see how we could, we could get to that view. <clears throat> and because it honors the fact that people have chosen this. There's a rejection happening. Okay, the conditional view. Um, the language here is basically... Heaven or hell is um, conditional upon the amount of belief or righteousness that you have. So that's where that language comes from. Um, but so option A um, is to read the biblical language about eternal punishment as kind of signaling something that's an, an eternal consequence, but it, you won't be there to, to know what it's like, okay? Um, and there's actually a, a Church of Christ guy who argued, does anyone know who the, the kind of big name Church of Christ guy is who argued this perspective? I'm sure George does. Well, you're not going to forget it because it is Edward William Fudge. 
That's a memorable name. All right. And I think there's a documentary about him, right? What's it's it called? A, it's a movie. It's a movie called, uh, what's it called? Like the called Devil and Mr. Fudge or something <laughs> like that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting. Um, but his book is, it's good. I would recommend it. It's called Hell, colon, A Final Word. And he really works, he does, he does a lot of close reading of the text and makes the argument that um, the word eternal in scripture always refers to realities belonging to the age to come. So he says eternal redemption results from redeeming that stops. Eternal judgment is the result of judging that ends. Eternal punishment results from punishing that stops. And destroying will not continue without end but the destruction that results will be everlasting. In other words, um, you're probably going to be burned up. This is his idea. Okay? If you're counter to God's good purposes, you're going to experience an, an annihilation that will be a forever consequence, but not a forever state of being in some sort of torment. Okay? <clears throat> so that's his argument. Option B for the conditional this is where um, people have said, maybe there's something like a kind of, they're reading the fire, the language of fire is a, a purgation, like it's purgative, it's going to burn away all things that are not in keeping with God's goodness and righteousness and good order. And um, it might be that you have the potential to be made better by that. It might be that you, when you're subjected to that process, there's not, I mean, one way I heard um, one theologian say it is, it may be when all the things that are against God are burned away from you, there's not much of you left to go to be in God's presence. Just kind of a creepy thought, right? Um, if you're into C.S. Lewis and you like um, The Great Divorce, I think this is a, a perspective he offers. I think that's a great book. Um, it's worth reading and kind of reflecting on that possibility um, of what will happen, you know, kind of when we have this option, perhaps, to to worship or not? Um, do we have the potential to be made pure? Also, uh, Roman Catholics have this doctrine of purgatory, which kind of falls in line with this, although it's a little different, because their idea, for a long time, the idea was, um, if, you were, if you had been a member of the church and had received the sacraments, then you had the, the possibility of being purged after death. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have allowed that option for non-Christians, essentially. So that is the difference there, but... <clears throat> Okay, and last, um, the universalist position. Essentially, um, this is one that, yeah, I mean, the way I was raised, I wouldn't have even thought this was a, I would have just assumed this was heresy or something. But I'm, I've done enough reading in it, you know, since I've, you know, in recent years to realize there are a lot of verses in Scripture we really do have to wrestle with when, when asking the question of, well, what is, is God, does God hope? for this, and if God hopes for something, can't God do it, right, this kind of idea. So uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, um, just as through one transgression came condemnation for all human beings, so also through one act of righteousness came a rectification of life for all human beings. Romans eleven thirty two, for God shut up everyone in obstinacy so that he might show mercy to everyone. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For just as in Adam all die, so also in the anointed all will be given life. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, Our Savior God, who intends all human beings to be saved, 
and to come to a full knowledge of the truth, for there is one God, one mediator of God, and human beings, <clears throat> the anointed Jesus, excuse me, who gave himself as a liberation fee for all. So this goes on. I mean, there's a long list of verses like this that I think we do have to wrestle with and have to ask, what does the for all mean? What is the desire that God has? And um, so the idea here is, I think I, I say all that to say, this isn't just mere heresy. I think it's something we have to take seriously and wrestle with. Is that, uh, so, totally no, it does not. Funny that you asked that. Because <laughs> um, that's my next point. So, one, like option A, he's making sure I don't sound like a heretic here. Uh, option A um, here would say that the judgment fire, the second death, is this kind of purgative thing that happens, and that um, God will essentially, God has uh, endless time and endless creativity, and God will endlessly pursue us in this purgatorial world, so to speak, until we turn and choose God. Um, one way that I've, there's a, a famous theologian named David Bentley Hart, famous in my circles, you might not have ever heard of him, Fam uh, famous is always relative in our world, but <clears throat> David Bentley Hart says, essentially, um, when you think about the worst person you can think of, usually we think of Hitler, he's always our example, but we usually say, well, that kind of person has, clearly is suffering from some sort of insanity or had some sort of you know, terrible experience as a child or both. So what would it look like when that kind of person has those things set right? What would they choose? What would they be like? What would they do? Right? So it's that kind of question. It's that question. You have to say, well, I wonder, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, so, you know, when you think about all things being purged away, all the things that are counter to God's purposes. Um, so I think that's, that's the way this, this position, position A, would, uh, would argue in favor of its uh, logic. David Bentley, here's a quote from him. David Bentley Hart says, Hell exists so long as it exists, only as the last terrible residue of a fallen creation's enmity to God, the lingering effects of a condition of slavery that God has conquered universally in Christ and will ultimately conquer individually in every soul. So that's his idea. Okay, and then uh, part B for the universalist option is basically a kind of declaration, a God just saying, I'm going to save you, whether you like it or not. Um, it's a nice thought, I guess, but it's hard to see how this position really preserves free will. So that's where uh, it's harder. It's hard, I would say this is about as hard to get on board with as the idea of God just eternally torturing someone for me. I think free will, freedom really matters in this somewhere. There has to be some, some way that we're preserving um, and for those who accept position A on the universalist <clears throat> option, they don't think that the judgment will be easy. They don't think that there will be some sort of easy, like, what, what does it look like to have all that stuff burned away from you? Well, it's not going to be fun, is what they would say. It's going to hurt. Um, so it's, there is still a judgment that they're preserving. Um, I feel less of that with that option B, so that's also kind of a problem. But... Um, I just want to go on record as saying I'm not defending a universalist position, okay? I just think it's an interesting conversation that we need to have as, you know, as Christians who are dedicated to understanding God's word. So, um, anything else you want to say? Yeah, I think that's uh, where I've kind of landed on that is we should, we should want to be, we all should want to be universalists. We hope that's true. 
Um, but we don't, you know, to me it has to matter how you live. The choices you make have to matter in some way. And it's hard to know, you know, what that, you know, even if it's really bad, it's just temporary um, judgment is like. But, but I'm hopeful. I mean, that's good. Uh, it, it changes a lot of things, I think, about how we view the world if, if we are universalists. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. I hope that's true, but I don't, it's hard to get there by all the scriptures. Because even in Revelation, there's the people outside the city. Uh, but maybe there's hope that they'll one day be included. I also want to mention, uh, since I've mentioned my dad already, uh, Fried Hardeman lectures, I think 1996 or 97, he refuted Ed Fudge's uh, arguments. Uh, it's published in one of the Fried Hardeman lecture books. So. Um, and one thing that I noticed from uh, John Mark's description of what this is going to be like of you know, the living on a redeemed earth. It's, it's super interesting to think about. Uh, we don't, uh, N.T. Wright says it's like we have signposts pointing into a fog, so we don't know exactly what that's going to be like. But what is it like if we're all redeemed, and what, what is there left to do? But he does mention that we're not, uh, we won't be omniscient or omnipotent. We're still creatures. We're still finite. So just endless things to discover, I suppose, something like that. All right, well, let's, uh, let's take some questions, comments. I have just a comprehensive question. Yeah. Could you just quickly, what's the difference between conditional B and universal A? I missed that. The, the um, <clears throat> part B for conditional would say there, there is a possibility of actually being annihilated. Like actually, and Universal says no one's going to be lost. Yeah. Uh, one book I can't remember when they went through that, uh, that talks about the new heavens and the new earth is uh, Middleton. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really really good, and it goes into <laughs> a lot of those points. I got a pretty good David Billy Hart quote. He's talking about this idea. And he said, as Christians, all we can do is hope in universal salvation and also pray that God's not a Calvinist. <laughs> he is harsh on the Calvinist. Um, I, I want to mention something Randy Harris used to say about the book of Revelation. Uh, he taught at Lipscomb and at Abilene that the book of Revelation says, you know, well, he sets it up by saying, you know, if I bet on sports, I'm usually not very good. Um, but if I, if I know who's going to win, I'm, I can bet 100%, you know, at that point. Uh, and Revelation is like, who's going to win? God is, go- God is going to win. So uh, there's good, there's evil. Uh, good is going to win. Um, choose, you get a choice. Uh, and don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, choose choose the good because we know that's gonna that's gonna win in the end. Uh, one thing I think, uh, and this is it's helpful to think about who this is written to. Like, this is not really written to the bad guys. 
is written to the, the good folks mm -hmm. and is telling them they're going to go through <coughs> suffering, but don't worry, you're going to be uh, vindicated and the people who are persecuting you are going to uh, suffer. And so I, I think it's not really giving us a very comprehensive look at like, what the ultimate you know, scenario is. It's kind of addressing the challenges that they're dealing with there. In Revelation 11, George's point about the renewed earth, uh, it says, you know, the time has come for, for judging the world and rewarding the saints and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So it's the idea, like, these liars and idolaters and people who are actually making things bad, and that's going to be dealt with. Um, and so, yeah, to me, that, like, that we don't have to come away with a really comprehensive answer here. Because this isn't really the, it's not the gospel message we're bringing to the lost. This is to yeah. comfort people who are dealing with oppressors. Yeah. And the oppressor was wrong. And we know that. And Paul doesn't know that he was, uh, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he was writing in response to the oppression of Jews under the Roman occupation. Uh, so, I don't see it, see it more as, as, as fancy words to use. <laughs> I see it as uh, a message of the oppressed overcoming the oppressor. And that's a recurring theme throughout history, uh, throughout all civilizations. Uh, oppression is happening now uh, in the world. The righteous, the good will overcome that. Mm -hmm. Even Martin Luther King's book. I don't see, I don't see it more of a standard I see it dealing with and, and God's work coming down to us to correct the, the, uh, the ill will, uh, ill doing of the oppressor. So that's really good. And then, you know, the very end and, and all throughout. 21 and 22, there's this theme that this is going to happen soon. This is going to happen soon. And then we, at this 2,000 years from there, have to, well, what does soon mean in this context? Because 2,000 years is not soon, I guess, unless you're God and there's, you know, infinite amount of time. But what does it mean to reveal in our language that this is going to happen soon? So there, there is an element to where this has to be going on presently. And it, it has some aspect, some application that's present for every generation. It's not just for some future time when this happens. And Alan speaking to us, when I was invited to us, we were back in India. And he made the comment, he said, we're Westerners trying to understand an Eastern language. The language is colorful, is metaphor, similar, and <coughs> our minds, I mean, if we, if, we, if we believe it as actually happening, we're not saying We're not saying people. Because yeah. no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you see these dragons and all these yeah. imagery. That's, that's not real. That's, that's, that's God trying to tell us. I like the, it reminds me of the joke about the guy that takes all his gold to heaven, you know, when he dies, and they go, you brought pavement? 
<laughs> Streets are golden. <laughs> we may need to finish up, but I don't know if there's something else one other person had. I thought I saw a hand somewhere, but yeah. Uh, when you were reading uh, Revelation 22, uh, it reminded me of a hymn that back when we didn't talk that much about Revelation, shall we gather at the river? And so I was playing that in my mind. And somehow when you combine the scripture with the song, it's more emotionally uplifting to add them both that it came from, you know, Josh talked about that sort of spoiler alert. <laughs> but uh, this morning and sermon about Christmas and songs. But I think that song, which just comes to mind when I read that scripture, actually makes it somehow emotionally more connected. Yeah. Yeah. I think about shall we get at the river, and then you have the Jordan River as well as a metaphor of crossing over the Jordan to the promised land. Mm -hmm. That that imagery gets used in a lot of our songs too. Thanks so much for being here, and this has been so fun to do this class with you all.